Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Chris Dixon, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, where he focuses on the A16Z crypto funds. Before joining Andreessen in 2013, Chris co-founded, built, and sold two technology companies and was a prolific seed investor, founding member of Founder Collective, and personal investor. At various spots along the way, Chris was an investor in BuzzFeed, Uber, Venmo, Hotel Tonight, Coinbase, and Oculus, among many others. Our conversation covers Chris's early interest in computers and business, and lessons from starting companies and angel investing. We then turn to his activities since joining Andreessen Horowitz, discussing new computing platforms, a brief history of centralized and decentralized computing, development of blockchain technologies, potential killer apps, token basics, and investor perception. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris Dixon. Chris, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start just back at the beginning for you and your initial interest in technology way back when? I was interested in computers and when I was a kid in the 80s. So I had, you know, if you talk to people in the business, in the industry, probably a pretty familiar path, which is I got an Apple II and I started programming games and just got really interested just generally in programming. I professionally programmed at college, so I helped pay my way through college and then I worked for a couple of years after college as a programmer at a high-speed options trading firm doing programming of financial models, I guess. 
which is a really cool job. It's a great way to pay off student loans. But uh, that was sort of late 90s. And I started reading about venture capital and startups and got interested in that and made the switch over to that world. So my understanding is as an undergrad, you were a philosophy major, which isn't necessarily what you think happens with programming. So how did that come about? It's not as crazy as it sounds. So I had read, there's this great book called Gerda Lesher Bach, Douglas Hofstetter. And there's a sort of a series of, it's like Daniel Dennett. There's kind of a series of writers who I think kind of were really had their golden age, maybe when I was a teenager, who would write about the intersection of how the mind works, how computers work, and maybe like sort of philosophical questions around logic and language. And so I got really interested in that. I was frankly a little arrogant. I thought I knew computers already, so I didn't need to do computer science. In retrospect, of course, I was extremely arrogant and I didn't really know that. I knew how to like program in a hacker sense, but not in anything. I wish I'd taken more proper computer science. When I did philosophy, I did kind of this analytic philosophy, it's called, which is logic and language. And I had a fantastic experience. I learned a lot. One of the nice things about that as a major was I was forced to write a lot. And I think had I done a technical major, I wouldn't maybe not have been forced to write as much. I have to say one thing about Columbia where I went was they were really strict about writing and would literally go through almost like you're a third grader and with a red pen and mark every single thing up and over and over and over. And you had to take these classes like you had to take a basically a remedial writing class almost as like a part of the core curriculum back then. Which actually, in retrospect, was a fantastic thing and I think has really helped me. I spent years and years blogging later on, which actually I think was an important part of my career development. And I give a lot of credit to having been forced to learn how to write. Because, you know, I, I grew up in Ohio and just the schools I went to in Ohio, for whatever reason, didn't teach me that. So I actually, you know, I had a fantastic experience with philosophy. I still like to read it sometimes. And it's one of those things, too, where if you don't do it in college, when are you going to do it? It's very hard to sort of casually pick up philosophy books later in life when you're busy with family and work and all that. It was great. But unfortunately, the job market in philosophy was not as robust as the technology industry. And so you then started a couple of businesses. How did you get interested in the business side of what you were doing in technology? I just started reading magazine articles and met a few people who were entrepreneurs. And it, for me, it was sort of epiphany. I didn't understand how the business world worked. I'd never had any experience with it. And the idea that you could have a job where you did things that were technical and kind of on the cutting edge and work with a bunch of people that you enjoy working with and take risks that appealed to me, like the idea that you would go and make a big bet and high variance outcome, like that felt exciting. So to me, that was an epiphany when I kind of realized that that world even existed. I think it's more, I mean, that was early 2000s. I think today it's people have seen movies like The Social Network and there's a much broader understanding that this world exists, at least for me, maybe it was just, I was sheltered or something, but for me, it was like a breakthrough. Wow. You can do that. Frankly, before that, I decided to be an academic. I thought that was the only place you could do some things that were kind of intellectual. And so the idea that you could do things, which I think what we do now is very intellectual and yet also take risks and work with people and be more extroverted and ideally have a significant impact on the world. That was appealing. So all that kind of came together. I started a, it was a 2004, I started a computer security company. I'd been interested in computer security for a long time. And computer security has this, this characteristic of being kind of this cat and mouse game between the good folks and the bad folks or something. And so as a result, is always dynamic and interesting. There's always new problems to solve. There's always new threats to counteract. And at the time, that was sort of the initial rise of phishing, pH phishing, adware, spyware. It was sort of the maturation of the internet and the bad guys, I would say, had gotten really far ahead of the defenses. And so me and my co-founders, we started a company called Site Advisor. And the idea was that we would warn people before they downloaded something that was bad or would hurt their computer. Kind of the way we thought about it was it would play the role. A lot of people have the experience, maybe who aren't as technical, of having a technical relative or friend who they call and say, hey, should I install this? And so our idea would sort of take that intelligence that you might get from a friend and bottle it into a piece of software. We pretty quickly generated interest from the big security incumbents. So back then, it was this Coke and Pepsi of security where McAfee and Symantec, which makes Norton products, and ended up in 2006 selling the company to McAfee. And so I think they just rebranded it for, for a decade or so. It was called McAfee Site Advisor. Now it's part of their kind of core consumer offering. It's part of it. It's like this web security, they call it or something. So we got kind of bundled in there. That was interesting. What were your formative lessons as a founder and operator in that business? Yeah, there was a bunch. I think the number one lesson, I mean, I'm fast forwarding a little bit to things I've learned now is who do you work with? Who are your co-founders? Who's your team? 
I was very fortunate to have two great co-founders and one of whom we then started another company later, Tom Pinkney. We worked together for a long time. They were much more technical than me. Doug and Tom are both MIT computer scientists, like with proper training and also great managers and just great partners, very collaborative. We'd spent a long time kind of getting to know each other and everything else, but you never really know until you work with people. And I've now seen enough startups to tell you that in certainly the majority of cases, there's a founder issue. It's a very, very stressful experience starting a company. And almost inevitably, at some point, there's tension between the founders and it can arise from a number of different things. It can arise from just personal friction. It often arises just from the fact that there's an imbalance. Maybe one is contributing more. It just very often happens. And then there's resentment and all sorts of things. So I'd say the number one thing is picking your partners well. And I happen to get lucky on that. And that made a huge difference. I'd say a very important lesson. And I think one I kind of learned the hard way on my second startup is don't try to create the trends as a startup. Try to ride the trends. I started a machine learning company called Hunch in 2008, which fast forward sold to eBay in 2011. For those who followed the history of AI and machine learning, we were frankly too early. So this modern wave of AI and machine learning started really in 2013 or so with this famous deep learning cat video YouTube thing. And and just for a whole bunch of reasons has really kind of accelerated. And basically, we were swimming against the current at that startup. And I think in retrospect, it was so much about timing and about not having the right momentum. Whereas with the first startup, which I think was much, much easier for us, we picked the right trends. Like it was, we were fighting the forces of malware and things on the internet, and that was growing very rapidly. There was a lot of attention on it, and there was a lot of money and people and other sorts of things getting thrown at it. And we had that wind at our back as opposed to in the second company having it against us. I think also people like me who have a technical background, we try to get too clever often with our startups and come up with some like really it's the bridge on the river Kwai syndrome. If you've seen that movie, you know, where the engineer falls in love with the bridge and forgets the larger war. I fell for this kind of syndrome where I fell in love with this mousetrap that we built, this incredible gadget or something, but then sort of lost track of the fact that maybe it wasn't as appealing to the rest of the world as it was to me. I see that a lot, especially with sort of more technical founders who are less commercially minded. Well, I could go on and on. There's a million lessons and mistakes we made and things. And so I guess I'm also, I'm cheating a little bit because I'm using the knowledge I've learned since then. I don't know if I knew all that back then. And then in both of those instances, you sold to a large company and then presumably spent some time there. Like, What did you find fit and didn't fit for you in that environment of a larger business? I guess I can say this now because it's been so long. When I was at McAfee, I remember we'd go there and it just felt like nothing was happening. Like After the startup, a big company, just a very, very different pace. And it was, wow, this thing is slow paced. And like, there's just not many people, like the office was kind of like empty and just felt like nothing was happening. And I was like, wow, this company must be struggling. And then the earnings would come out and it was like record profits, blew it out of the park, stocks up X percent or whatever. I dug in, of course, there are people working and everything else. What you learn with these big companies, I think in the case of McAfee at that time, at least, was there was this giant cash cow business, which had been started. By the way, the people always ask me, the founder, McAfee, was not there anymore. I think he left in like the, I forget when, the 90s or something. But basically, like he and, you know, these early pioneers had created these incredible businesses, which had incredible momentum behind them. And they were these huge cash cow businesses. And there were very, very talented people at the company who ran those cash cow businesses, as you can imagine. And they would do things like cut deals. The way you buy antivirus in 2007 is you'd buy a Dell computer and then they would have a checkbox and they would sort of upsell you essentially. And so they're very, very good at cutting these deals. They had a very good antivirus team that did the core stuff. But then what would inevitably happen is they had all of these other investments all over the place and they were treated as second tier priorities. I was an acquisition. I was put as a shiny new thing in the R&D group. And I didn't realize at the time that I was in sort of the, the non-cash cow bucket or something. And so getting to learn how the kind of internal politics of these companies work and both the strengths and the weaknesses, right? Like on the one hand, the thing that's so strong about these really powerful incumbent franchises is they have these incredible businesses and this incredible brand. I've never worked at a company where when I was at a dinner and they said, where do you work? And you say McAfee that had such incredibly high brand recognition, right? Because everyone has experienced the software. I think at the time, Symantec was the biggest subscription business in the world. Like it had a hundred and something million subscribers, which back then was the record. Anyway, so, you know, it's the Greek tragedy. The thing that makes it strong, which is this incredible core franchise is also the thing that makes it so hard to innovate. And I think eventually probably leads to the downfall of these companies. If you believe the Clay Christensen theory of the world, right? I think what's so powerful about the Clay Christensen theory is prior to him, people thought that incumbent businesses are quote unquote disrupted because they're poorly managed. And what was so interesting about Clay Christensen is he said, no, it's precisely because they are well managed because they are listening to their most profitable customers and they are 
building the features those best customers want is precisely why they miss these kinds of new things that start out looking like toys and get better. So just observing that in the inside, that was my only experience of big companies was those kind of year stints at McAfee and then eBay later on. So as you turn to doing your own angel investing and early seed investing, I'm curious about these three things you talked about earlier, which is that first experience of really matters who the people are. The second experience learning, well, actually, it also matters if you're riding the wave or you're fighting the wave. And then, of course, the product or being in love with the product. So how did you bring those together and decide how you wanted to look at investing? Yeah. So maybe it'd be helpful if I gave my investing background as well. So that was my entrepreneur career, which ended in 2011 when I sold Hunched eBay. And then simultaneously, after I sold my first company in 2006, I started personally angel investing, right? And so this was uh, literally a week after I had sold it, I wrote my first angel check. And I also, with some friends, co-founded a seed venture fund called Founder Collective, which we started in 2008-9, which was invested in a bunch of early stage companies. And so I did that. I also personally invested. And then 2013, I joined Andreessen Horowitz and have done venture capital since then. So I had a sort of a, I guess, seven-year stint before venture capital doing kind of angel investing. I had an interesting experience angel investing, which is I, I did what a lot of people do. I started investing in some friends I thought were smart, people I met that were smart, but also in things I knew because I had just sold my security company. So I started investing in security companies as well, you know, because it seemed to be like an area I knew something about. And then I, I noticed something interesting a couple of years into it, which was my security investments were kind of my worst investments, which I thought was somewhat contrary to what one might expect, given that that's, I just sold a company to McAfee and I was, quote unquote, allegedly a domain expert. What I've come to believe in retrospect is that early stage angel investing is, you'll often hear that it's 80% about the people or something and 20% about the idea or something like that. I think it's like 98% I've now learned about the people and like 2% about the idea. And the reason that my security investing was my worst category was that that was a category where I understood the idea is the best. And I would, as a result, overlook the quality of the team and fall in love with the ideas and anchor too much on the ideas when I'm in the assessing the potential quality of the investment. Whereas in other areas, so, you know, I'll take an example, like I was an angel investor in a very successful healthcare company. I know nothing about healthcare. This was a multi-billion dollar exit. I was an early stage investor in it. And I'd love to tell you that it was my genius theory of healthcare. It wasn't. It was because I knew the founders. I had known the, I invested in the founders prior company. I'd met these founders, particular founders, when they were college students. And I'd gotten to know them really well. And we spent years together. And they started a healthcare company. I don't know. The first thing about healthcare. And I literally have one healthcare investment. And it's this great one. And I'd love to tell you I'm a genius in healthcare. I know nothing about it. That was kind of my early learning was, wow, like, it really has all these theories I have and all the seemingly fancy learnings over the years about the technology industry are completely dwarfed by the importance of the team. And you know, I had this friend, a guy named Balaji Srinivasan, who's a good friend, who has this concept called the idea maze. And it's meant to describe the entrepreneurial experience and the, the kind of metaphor he uses. Think of the idea when people say, like, I'm going to start a video sharing startup, right? Don't think of it like as a static thing. Think of it as a maze, like sort of a dynamic thing. And by maze, he means you're running around, the entrepreneur's running around turning corners and running into dead ends, occasionally getting whatever attacked by a monster or finds a pot of gold or something like this. And by the way, the maze changes over time, you know, as a new mobile phones come out and suddenly a new area of the maze is unlocked for video sharing because now there's mobile video sharing or something. So the point of this is to think of it as you're really betting on a person and are they picking the right maze? And are they somebody who will run around and quickly explore that maze and run as fast as you can down a dark alley and then hit a dead end and then quickly run back. And so you're, it, it's a very dynamic process. And the reason it's an important concept is that the idea matters. It's not to say that there are definitely bad startup ideas and good startup ideas, so it does matter. But you need to think of the idea as this dynamic process that is much more nuanced and complicated and, and will inevitably change over the course of the startup. So you want to make sure you're sort of entering the right maze, but you also want to, as an investor at least, the most important thing is making sure you're betting on people who who are going to very intelligently navigate that maze and also, frankly, stick with it. One of the biggest things I've seen over the years is just it's very, very hard. It's very easy to capitulate. And it's one of the best predictors of startup success. It'd be great if you knew it ahead of time. It's very hard to know ahead of time. But one of the highest correlates or something is persistence. So when those entrepreneurs are walking that line, how do you figure out who's going to be good at this concept of you're in the maze, you run into a wall, you turn around and run the other way or a different direction compared to sticking to it because actually that wall was just a mirage or there was something on the other side. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And so short answer is nobody knows. And that's why venture capital 
<laughs> people have a portfolio and anyone who tells you they know is, I think, doesn't really know. But I mean, like, there, there are things you can like, obviously, if you've known somebody, if you've backed them before, this is why you'll see a lot of VCs and angel investors, they'll back the same people over and over because there's nothing that matches the experience of having actually observed somebody in a maze before, right? So that's part of it. I think there's other things, people that have built successful products in the past. In the software world today, a lot of people have open source backgrounds, so they built really interesting open source projects. And so maybe not a commercial business, but they've shown that they can come up with something clever and lead a team and organize a community and do all the things that are required to do that. But I think the short answer is that if you go hang out with a bunch of early stage investors, they'll They'll spend the whole evening telling you their latest theories and how they evaluate things. (laughs) And you can certainly get better at it, but in the end, it's just very, very hard to do. And as a result, the best practice is to simply just have a portfolio of investments and know that at least probably at the early stage, at least half will fail, if not more. Through your angel and seed investing before and now, you've kind of found your way into some really big opportunities, right? So VR obviously being one, and you did some drones and some big name companies, how do you go about figuring out which maze you want to try to find the navigators in? So I think that the technology world right now is very, very large and exciting. And there's a whole bunch of exciting things happening. So probably the biggest area of activity in Silicon Valley right now is on the enterprise software side and you know, SaaS, software as a service. Specifically, there's a whole new generation of enterprise companies that are doing what are called bottom-up sales. So they look much more like consumer companies. They kind of go viral, like Slack is a good example, where it kind of goes viral among the employees and then kind of makes its way up to the CIO and gets these big checks and things. And so that, for example, is very exciting. I don't do that. I'm just saying, like, it's not my area. Our firm does, and we have a great, I think, practice group that does that. It's not my personal area. There's all sorts of stuff happening in the kind of mainstream consumer internet stuff, so new social networks and things like this. And again, we have a practice like that. There's all sorts of exciting stuff happening in bio. We have a separate bio fund for that. Bio, like, what we're seeing more and more of is the intersection of computer science and biology becoming a more and more interesting area with more entrepreneurs and things. So I say all that to say that there's The stuff I'm going to talk about is not by any means the only thing going on. My personal area of interest is in what I would call kind of new computing platforms. And so the idea here is if you look at the last, I guess, 70 years of computing, going back to World War II and the advent of modern computers, there's been these waves every 10 to 15 years of new computers. So mainframes, mini computers, PCs, the internet, mobile phones, right? There's been all these kinds of waves of these things. And I've been very interested in how those waves happen and have been interested in, and as a career choice have decided to, I want to kind of go there and try to invest in these new emerging computing platforms. And I, I'll fast forward, but I think VR is a computing platform. I think blockchains are a computing platform. And I think they have a lot of similar dynamics and development characteristics to the past kind of computing wave. So I joined Andreessen Horowitz in 2013 and I decided, you know, I wanted to focus on new computing platforms. I think that's really exciting. I'm still very excited about things like virtual reality, but I got most excited about blockchains slash cryptocurrency and sort of fast forwarding, I guess it was two or three years ago, we created a dedicated crypto fund and I spent almost all my time for now three or four years on that. I guess what I would say also is I was thinking about this the other day, I was at the dentist and they had Friends, the TV show on TV, which I hadn't seen in decades. It was very interesting to see Friends. I think it's from the 90s. What was interesting to me about it is everything almost looked like it was happening today, except for one giant notable difference, which is there were no mobile phones, right? And basically no internet. It's kind of like a mirror, like an alternative reality where, I mean, maybe the fashions were different. I don't know. I'm not, I, I probably didn't notice, but almost everything else, it was like today, right? Except they would have these weird plot lines where like two people couldn't talk to each other from 50 feet away because they didn't have mobile phones, right? And so it's very interesting to think, like, why do we now have these internet connected supercomputers in our pockets? And yet nothing else. You look around, my washing machine hasn't gotten that much better. My car hasn't gotten that much better. Almost nothing else has improved at the same rate, right? So why is that? And I would argue people say things like Moore's Law. So Moore's Law is this idea, you know, that you can pack more semiconductors onto a chip and things. I think that's part of it. I mean, certainly that matters. It matters that semiconductor fabs get better and better and things. But to me, that's not the really the core concept. The core concept is when you have a new computing platform, like let's say a mobile phone, it goes through multiple phases, but at some point it hits a phase. And so in the case of the mobile phone, this is around 2009, I'd say through 13, where it goes into this hyperspeed exponential growth period where the computer itself, i.e. the mobile phone is getting rapidly, rapidly better, like kind of exponentially better. And in addition, the applications on top of it are getting 
exponentially better. And the combined result is a multiplier effect between these two exponential curves, which leads to this incredible change that happens in a very rapid period of time and then leads to this shocking thing when you look at friends and you compare it to today that we pull out these super these like star trek devices you know like it's unbelievable like how good these things have gotten and like why hasn't the rest of the world gotten that way the short answer is computers are special because computers specifically have this feedback loop when they hit this golden period of product market fit they have this flywheel where the applications get rapidly better and that in turn creates economics incentives for the platform to get better, which in turn creates economic sentence for the application. So just like as the phone got better, the camera got better, which then allowed Instagram to come along and Instagram made photography on the phone even more popular, which in turn made Apple invest more into the camera and like this beautiful flywheel. Right now you have these cameras now and the new phones that are better than DSLRs. And if you look at the number of photographs taken, it's grown like many orders of magnitude. So that particular kind of flywheel, I think, is this very magical thing. I think we're about to hit that, I believe, in the blockchain world. It requires a bunch of conditions to get to that point. And there's a whole bunch of things that happen at different phases. I've written blog posts about this people are interested in. But I, I think of it as there's sort of two major phases of these computing waves. There's this gestation phase where there's kind of these early mo- like mobile phones. People today might think it began with the iPhone. In fact, there were 20 years of attempts to make mobile phones. There's a a documentary people might be interested in about General Magic, which is a company in 1993 that was really trying to build an iPhone. There were for a decade, I mean, people say Windows, Microsoft missed mobile phones. They didn't miss mobile phones at all. They had mobile phones in the late 90s. They had very good ones in the early 2000s. I owned some of them. They had various other issues with the design and things, and I think which is why they missed that opportunity. There were other great mobile phones like the Trio. There was the early Palm Pilots. There was the Sidekick. There were a whole bunch of stuff, right? And then eventually it all kind of came together in the iPhone and then Android. And then you had, people forget this, but the iPhone came out in 2007 and then the App Store in 2008. But the real growth happened around like 2009 when you started to get this double flywheel feedback loop between the apps and the infrastructure of the phones. And so I became very interested in these kinds of concepts. And I said, okay, I want to identify the next major computing platforms and I want to invest in those things and I want to get involved. I want to help those entrepreneurs. And I want to do it through the whole life cycle of that new platform, right? And I think there'll be investment opportunities at all stages and they'll be different and they'll change. But that seemed really like a big idea and exciting and and frankly, something where I felt like I could have make a personal impact because I felt like I understood it and I could kind of help nudge it along instead of kind of just sort of riding along, maybe actually be kind of a central actor in that new story was the hope. So I'd love to turn to crypto and blockchain in particular and maybe start with this notion of when you go through the example of an iPhone, you have Apple who had created this initially closed ecosystem. And blockchain, to some extent, is the complete opposite of that. Why don't you start talking about what happens with centralized and decentralized systems? Yeah. And so one thing I'd say is we live in a recent period where a lot of the most successful computing was centralized. But the history of computing is there's a mixture. So the web, as an example, was a decentralized technology and a lot of the internet, but the web is a specific kind of network on top of the internet. And email is another good example where, which is a protocol called SMTP, which was decentralized. And so I would argue the 90s was an era where the decentralized computing won out. And then the next decade or two, we've had a much more centralized era, as you point out, like with the mobile phone. 95% of the software in the world, if not more, is open source software. Your Android phone runs Linux. Your iPhone has a huge proportion of the software is open source. Almost every server is running, you know, AWS, et cetera, is running Linux on the other side. That's open source software. That's made by a ragtag group of people that get together on GitHub and design that software. That's a crazy idea, by the way, that I don't think has fully permeated the broader consciousness that the vast majority of software we use today is made by a ad hoc group of people on the internet and not inside of a company. A lot of the thesis we have with crypto blockchain is that a similar thing will happen with internet services in the same way that almost all software today is made by a group, a community of people who get together and build something. We think the same thing will happen with internet services, not just internet software, a social network or something, right? So like what happened, right, is that open source commoditized software. You have almost no software companies today. They're all service companies because they had to move up the stack because open source kind of ate that layer of the stack. So they all moved up the stack to the services layer. And what's happening now is that using blockchains, people are going to move up to that layer of the stack. So things like social networks, marketplaces, all these things that are today created with centralized proprietary companies are going to be created, what we think, by communities of people on the internet who come together and build these 
kinds of new things. And so I'm just, I guess, pointing out that the kind of in the history of tech, there have been, I think the PC was, I have this blog post about it. It's called Inside Out versus Outside In Technologies. So I sort of think of it as some technologies come from the fringe and then make their way in. And I think the web is like that. The PC was like that. If you go back and read about like the early homebrew computer clubs, Steve Jobs, et cetera, these were fringe people. The mainstream at the time was IBM building mainframes. The PC was a very fringe movement. The web is a very fringe movement. The original version of Bill Gates' Road Ahead came out in 1995. It was talking about the future of computing, and the word World Wide Web did not occur in that book. They talk about the information superhighway. People forget this, but there were two visions of the internet in the 90s. The information superhighway was Microsoft, Disney, Comcast, which was to have these big centralized systems, and you would go buy a box, and they would have these video-on-demand stuff and a bunch of, like, it'd be like this little playpen, like AOL, MSN or something. And then there was this other vision of the internet, which was the kind of the hacker Unix vision, which was Mosaic and the browser and all these other things, which was the idea that, no, anyone could just build a website permissionlessly, and anyone could put up video, and anyone could do whatever, and it was just going to kind of happen organically, and that's the vision that won. And it wasn't obvious at the time. I think people now have a revisionist history that it was it was obviously going to be one that sort of decentralized technology. So, Anyway, so I guess I would say that I think that because the last big innovation was centralized, mobile phones, and mobile phones had to be centralized because it's hardware, it's CapEx intensive. Like you just, a ragtag group of people in 2007 could not have come together and built an iPhone. You just can't. You needed a factory. You needed like hundreds of millions of dollars. You needed like, you know, to make breakthroughs and touchscreen, capacitive touchscreens and all sorts of things. I would say that it's not as contrarian as it may at first appear to think that a major new computing technology would be built by organic communities on the internet, which I think is, I believe is what hap- is happening now. And I think it's the most important thing happening now in computing. So you go back a couple of years ago, say 2017, and Bitcoin price is going through the roof and people are paying attention to it and all this money got raised in ICOs. We're now three years later. What's happened with the underlying technology and use cases? So if I could, maybe I'll give a quick summary of the history and of blockchains and what they are. So blockchains were invented by Bitcoin. It was a paper came out in late 2000s, pseudonym in this paper, Satoshi Nakamoto, and this idea of Bitcoin. And, and the idea was to create a decentralized money system. There's a big debate as to whether it's meant to be focused on payments or store of value. It's since become very much about store of value, kind of digital gold. A very, very important thing happened in 2015-ish, which was the invention of Ethereum. So what Ethereum was, was it said, okay, let's take this core architecture that Bitcoin designed and let's generalize it. So Bitcoin is a computer. I think if, the way I think of Bitcoin, it's a computer in a sense of that. By the way, what is a computer? A computer is a thing that can store things and run code that operates on those things, right? And so by that definition, Bitcoin and Ethereum very much are computers. Bitcoin is a computer that runs a specific application. That application is this store of value digital gold application, right? Ethereum said, let's take that architecture and let's generalize it. And let's add a programming language that looks a lot like a common programming language like JavaScript. And you can do anything you can think of, you can program, and you can run it on the Ethereum computer. Ethereum was a very, very important generalization of blockchain computing. Okay? An, an obvious question is, why would you as a programmer want to run something on the Ethereum computer as opposed to running it on AWS? Or in general, why would you want to use a blockchain? I call blockchains computers that can make commitments. And so what that means is you write some software on the Ethereum computer and you can write some software that says, I'm going to build a social network. And on this social network, I'm going to commit to you that if you make a post I'm not going to take down your post unless X, Y, and Z happen, like some kind of like strict computer terms, right? If you're a developer building on my social network, like you, my take rate is X and it will never change. And I'm committed to that. Or I'm going to build a currency like Bitcoin. And I'm going to say one of the commitments Bitcoin makes, there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins, right? And you don't have to trust a person, the inventor of Bitcoin, a company that's built into the very fabric of the computer, that commitment. So Bitcoin makes various commitments like the only ever be 21 million Bitcoins, that if you hold a private key, this secret code for your Bitcoin, you will always be able to get that Bitcoin, right? Those are certain commitments Bitcoin makes. What Ethereum lets you do is make generalized commitments. So you can make your own currency on top. I can make Chriscoin and Chriscoin can say, has these various features. There's going to be 10 million Chris coins. And you know what? Once I write that code, you don't have to believe that I will do that because you can just look at the code. By the way, everything on a blockchain in the crypto world is open source. You can just go read the code and you can look at it, right? 
Compare that to if Google said, we're going to have Google coin, okay, or Facebook made some commitment, right, or so whatever. How would you know they're going to keep that commitment? You would have their assurance of it. But like companies change their mind all the time. And in fact, tech companies have a long history of changing their mind. But developers have been experiencing this for years and years with gaming platforms, with Facebook, with Twitter, where the API rules change, the take rates change. There's huge issues that we have, our startups have with the Apple App Store. They change the rules all the time. They arbitrarily decide to do things. Platforms have a long history of kind of changing the rules. So one of the really interesting features of blockchains is you can make a platform where the commitments are baked into the code. You can create internet money. There's a big area now called DeFi, decentralized finance. You can create new kind of financial systems. You can create new social networks. And then all these things have the key feature when they're built on a blockchain of being able to make commitments. Commitments that cannot be overridden by the developers. It cannot be overridden by anyone. They're baked into the code. That is a new thing that never existed before blockchains, right? Because before blockchains, all computers ultimately were just owned by somebody and that person could just change the code. And so you could never credibly, before a blockchain, make some kind of commitment that anyone would have any belief in beyond their belief in the person who owns that computer. So that's the big new thing that you can do with the blockchain. And we're just seeing, anyway, so Ethereum came out in 2015. Since then, Ethereum, every day, probably meet an entrepreneur who's building software on top of Ethereum. It's a very, very active developer platform. Stanford has a blockchain cryptocurrency course for computer science undergraduates. It's the second most popular computer science course at Stanford, about 200 students, and almost all of them at the end of the course build applications on Ethereum. I mean, that's kind of what you do in the blockchain world these days. So Bitcoin gets a lot of attention and Bitcoin is very important and we're excited about Bitcoin and we have investments in Bitcoin. But it's just sort of the tip of the iceberg of what's happening in the blockchain world. What's also happening is Ethereum has limitations. So there's all sorts of interesting stuff going on that are improving on that. There's things that are built on top of Ethereum to kind of improve the performance. There's competitors to Ethereum. We're investors, by the way, in all sort of different layers here. We're investors in competitors. We're investors in things that build on top. We're investors in new blockchains that are targeting specific use cases like video games and other kinds of things. There's all sorts of interesting applications being built on top. And so there's this whole kind of rich world, which I think is not talked about as much in the broader context. And I think as, as a result, people kind of think when they hear crypto blockchain, they think of Bitcoin has branding. I think a lot of it goes back to 2017 or even 2013 that people kind of associate with crypto anarchism, libertarianism, et cetera, which I think is somewhat accurate with respect to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is one very important specific blockchain. The technology is, I think, much more broadly applicable. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. So when you think about where we are in the life cycle of these use cases, how far away are we from your average consumer being able to use something on the blockchain for call it economic activity in some sense? It's the hardest thing to do. I think, I believe when I was talking about these computing cycles earlier, I think that they're in some ways sort of predictable in how they happen. I think it's what's very hard to predict is the timing. So the iPhone came out in 2007. I had a friend who was a mobile gaming entrepreneur for many years and quit in 2006 because he thought it was just never going to happen. And if you kind of look back, it was like this hockey stick and it was right before. So it's very hard to know exactly when these things are going to really hit. I would say the short answer is somewhere between one and five years. There's a bunch of very interesting new blockchains focused on payments, including Libra, which is Facebook's blockchain effort. The insight there was sort of the learnings that these projects took from the Bitcoin world is that 
people wanted two things different than Bitcoin. One, they wanted price stability. So if you look at Libra, Celo, there's a whole set of these new payment blockchains. Essentially, they have a currency that's pegged to the dollar or some other kind of familiar thing. And then secondly, they're very high performance, high throughput, low cost to transact. I would sort of say that they'll do for payments what I think of as WhatsApp did for messaging. The pre-iPhone world, you had SMS. It cost, you know, I don't know, what was it, 10 cents a message. It's amazing to think about now. People were on different networks. One of the big breakthroughs of the BlackBerry, right, was BBM, was a messaging service, which was sort of cross-network. You could go across AT&T and T-Mobile. I think of payments very much like that today. Try to send international payments today. It's very expensive. You know, you send these wire service things and you pay dollars if not more. There's different networks, different banking systems. It's all doesn't interoperate. So that, that's kind of what you can kind of think of the payment blockchains as doing. There's a bunch of interesting stuff happening around video games. The growing and dominant business model for video games today is around virtual goods. Maybe people either play Fortnite or have family members who play Fortnite, as an example. That's a multi-billion dollar revenue business. All the revenue comes from buying virtual goods. So you buy a better emote, which is like a dance move or outfit or whatever, and that's what you're paying for. It doesn't even make you better at the game. Actually, that's like a philosophical thing. It just makes you look cooler. And so one big area that's exciting is you can take virtual goods and you can take them out of the game and have secondary markets and bring them from one game to another and do all sorts of things like that. And that's an exciting area that's just starting to develop. There's a bunch of interesting stuff happening. I mentioned before DeFi, decentralized finance, which is so, for example, like lending protocols. So that what that means is you can lend money to the actual code. It's a very new concept. The code itself takes the money, not the company. There is no company. It's just literally a piece of code. You can lend money to the code and the code will pay you interest for lending money to it. And in turn, the code turns around and lends money to other people. And it all does this algorithmically. And you're literally lending money to the code. Everyone who ever created the project could disappear and go away. And the code just runs. It's just this autonomous code that just runs all day and runs on the Ethereum blockchain. And that currently, I think the current numbers, if you look today, there's something like $12 billion, billion with a B, in those protocols being lent out as we speak. And that number's grown very, very rapidly and will continue to grow. And it has this really nice feature where you can be anywhere in the world. You can be in South America and you can get the same interest rates and you can get as somebody anywhere. It's just piece of code, global piece of code on the internet. I think it's the way it should be. And by the way, it's all open source. It's permissionless. You can build on top of it. You can build around it. One of the really cool things happening in DeFi, people call it money Legos, which is you can take, because everything's open source and what we call composable, meaning I can take your piece of code and this piece of code over here, and I can combine them and write a new piece of code that uses both of them, right? And so even if I wrote the code, it's no longer mine. It's just this thing out there. Anyone can access it. And people are taking these things and repurposing them and kind of building, like that's why we call them Legos, is like they're sort of, they built a whole bunch of little basic building blocks and other people come along and recombine them. And it's happening very, very rapidly. And all the, I think, exciting principles of open source, which is like it's completely open, no IP, no patents, nothing like this. Anyone in the world can access it. Complete level playing field. Some kid in some random place can come along and build something and it's a hit app. A lot of these, actually, these applications that are pseudonymous, like we don't even know if they made them. There's like a really popular, trendy new options platform that's made by a pseudonymous group that we just know them by their handles, you know. So like this is the new world. But And then, by the way, you don't need to know them because you can read the code. It's all open source. Like you don't have to trust them. You trust the code. How do you think about where we are today in the evolution of the programming of these applications compared to a couple of years ago? I think with respect to crypto blockchains, we are pre-iPhone moment. Like we haven't had the breakthrough platform yet. I think we're somewhere, if you map it to mobile phones, let's say, I think we're probably 2004, 2005, I hope at least that we're like a year or two away from kind of the iPhone moment. And we've invested in a bunch of things, which we think could be the iPhone Thinking about from an investment entrepreneurial point of view, you can make money and really contribute to the world at any phase along this development cycle, including now. It's not we're not quite there yet. We haven't built applications that reach hundreds of millions of people yet, but there's still lots of interesting work to create. And then once we kind of get into that exponential period, the nature of the work will change because you'll be doing probably less infrastructure work and more application level work, more things that are directly user experience. Just like today, like with the mobile phone, most of what people do is things that directly interact with end users, whereas early on you tend to do more infrastructure. Do you think that it requires at some point in time a killer app to draw the attention to hit that inflection point? I think that often happens. With mobile phones, you could argue it was the BlackBerry killer app. The BlackBerry story is very interesting. There's a good book called Losing the Signal. It's the history of RIM, the company behind BlackBerry. Their hypothesis, so mobile phones, people had tried mobile phones for years and had failed. 
And they came along in the early 2000s and said, you know, our theory as to why they failed is no one has identified the killer app, to your point. And we believe the killer app will be essentially it's messaging, what we call today WhatsApp. And they realized the only way to do this is to build everything ourselves. So they built the full stack, as we say, like they built the device. They built the operating system. They built the network. They went and got the minutes, you know, the cell minutes. They built the back end encryption. They built the whole thing. And they did it because they had to, to make what they imagined, which is let's call it the WhatsApp experience or something, right? And they did that. And it was wildly successful. And then they, of course, did not adapt. I mean, actually, they're still around in reasonably valuation. I don't know what they are, but they certainly aren't as culturally relevant as they were. But then what happened is Apple came along and said, you know what, the world has changed and now we can build a general purpose computing platform, which has messaging as a single feature and yet has many other killer apps as well. You know, if you go back to the early PC, I would say the killer app was probably word processing and desktop publishing. Spreadsheets were important too, but that was sort of the killer app. Microsoft building the word processor and all these other, you know, that was really what drove a lot of the early PC stuff. And I think with crypto blockchains, the Bitcoiners would argue it's Bitcoin itself. I think Bitcoin is important, but I think a little too eccentric for the billions of people kind of scale. I think payments, as I was mentioning, is a very likely, quote, killer app. I think payments could be the BlackBerry. You could think of, in some ways, these payment blockchains I described earlier is trying to do kind of what BlackBerry did. They're trying to do for blockchains what BlackBerry did for mobile phones. I think longer term, the financial stuff like lending and things like this are very interesting. I think the idea that if you think about the process now where I go down to Citibank and give them my money and get, I don't know, zero percent interest, something close to zero percent interest. And then I walk down and buy food at the Vietnamese restaurant. And the Vietnamese restaurant, meanwhile, walks down to Citibank and fills out a bunch of forms and tries to get a loan. And they don't even know who that restaurant is. And they have some convoluted ancient process. God knows what it is running COBOL or something. I don't know what they do. Decide to give them a loan. When in fact, I know that restaurant directly. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why, like you could imagine a system where the mediation is happening through software and not through these giant, very inefficient legacy organizations like these giant old banks, right? And instead, I'm lending money to a software platform. That software platform is efficiently deciding based on lots of interesting internet knowledge as to how to lend it out in turn. So I think longer term, other financial services like lending, as an example, are very interesting. But, you know, we could probably need like a lot more things to happen to make this all of these technologies more accessible. The user experience has to get better. The performance has to get better, et cetera. Your fund was really one of the first in the space that had a significant institutional following. And I'm curious what you've heard from your investors about their perceptions of the space as it's evolved the last couple of years. I think on the institutional side, with respect to crypto blockchain, there's broadly two narratives, right? There's the Bitcoin narrative, which I think has, from what I can tell, the financial world has become more accepting of, I guess. You're starting to see institutions, hedge fund managers, et cetera, think about Bitcoin as a substitute for gold. So there's that kind of thread. Again, I'm pro-Bitcoin, but I very much view it through the first principles of venture capital. What venture capital is about investing in very smart people who want to be on the cutting edge of technology and build new things. And if you just sort of headcount the very smart people that come to us that are in Silicon Valley, that are coming out of top computer science programs, et cetera, something on the order of 10% of them, uh, I would say, are building blockchain applications. So for me, it's relatively simple kind of way to explain it, which is our core job is to invest in these great computer scientists and entrepreneurs who want to build the future. And a significant portion of them are building crypto blockchain apps. And so for us to properly do our job, we should be investing in them. And then there's a bunch of reasons why you need a separate fund for that, including the fact that the assets we're buying are different. They're not traditional equity and things. We're actually buying directly these digital assets. And so that creates all sorts of interesting other kinds of complexities around legal and accounting and custody and a whole bunch of different things. So for me, it's really first principles. From the outside, it may sound kind of like this wacky new thing. For me, it's actually just bread and butter venture capital, which is we follow the talent and we provide the money and resources and maybe some coaching and guidance. But fundamentally, it's about what are the smartest people excited about and where are they going and spending their time and, and building new things? And so look at that lens, I think it's far less wacky and different than it may appear from the outside. So you touched on this one key difference in these different assets, different forms of assets that you own. I'm kind of curious thinking about it's one thing to say you're following the talent and what they're developing. And it's another thing to 
figure out how that's going to transfer into an economic return if it's not in the form of a company. So what are the different variations of the assets that you own? Once you understand how those, what we call token mechanics work, that bet then comes down to what are the applications being built on this platform and why would they attract more and more users? We can be right or wrong about it, but that's sort of traditional venture capital. Like, hey, will this be a popular thing? Are these people good at building it? And will they build something people want to use? So in that way, it's very much like a traditional venture capital bet. Now, one of the exciting things about crypto is that you can build tokens, digital assets. You can come up with any structure you can come up with. You can invent new types of assets. So there's other ones. So for example, there's what are called governance tokens, which let you vote and control the system. So imagine a future social network like Twitter, but it's built on blockchains. And imagine that there are decisions being made around, for example, what are the rules around misinformation or who gets deplatformed or all these kinds of decisions that today are made by employees of Twitter. What if instead that happens sort of democratically through the Twitter token holders who would vote on these decisions, right? And would those tokens have value as a result? There are other tokens which essentially generate cash flow. The system charges fees and that those fees are then given out to the token holders. So in some ways that behaves more like a traditional financial asset. So there's all sorts of different ones. And actually, one of the things we do when we assess a crypto investment, in addition to the usual things you do in venture capital, like assessing the team and the product and the technology, is we then look at how is their digital asset designed and do we believe that it will accrue value if they succeed in the other aspects of it. And I'd say to me, that makes it more interesting and newer and exciting new ideas there. That said, now that we're 10 years into the since the advent of Bitcoin and five years of since the start of Ethereum, people have kind of converged on a few different token models. The Ethereum resource token, there's a kind of governance token, there's a few different models that have become more common as people have learned. And so people have been buying digital assets for a long time. So like domains as an example, cdixon.org is I own or in the 90s, there were a bunch of people, domainers, who went and bought a bunch of domains. And it turns out actually, if you go back outside of an angel investment and let's call it and say Amazon or something, buying domains was probably the best, single best investment strategy in the 90s. Pizza.com recently sold for $10 million. You know, at one point you could buy these things for $8 off the shelf. So domains are digital assets. You're buying domains in the 90s, you were betting this internet thing is going to get more popular. These are scarce, these are like real estate. They're like scarce resources. And as the internet becomes more popular, these domains will go up in value. IP addresses, you know, if you're familiar with those, like the 236.132. You know, you may have seen these. Those also, they're scarce digital assets. They've gone up dramatically in value as along with the internet. So it's not that new of a concept in a way to have these basically have these things, these scarce resources associated with the new network that if the network becomes popular, the resources will too. All right, Chris, I want to ask you one more question before we turn to a couple of closing questions, which is what is the next blog post that you're ruminating on? I keep trying to make these concepts simpler and simpler. It's been difficult to mainstream these ideas. And there's a lot of confusion and just different concept, whatever, just different ideas floating around there. So I've spent a lot of time, and actually one of the things I'm ruminating on is like, I keep trying to come up with simpler and simpler ways to kind of explain blockchains and blockchain computing. I'm very interested in the idea of, uh, and I've thought a lot about it. I have a lot of thoughts around how one would technically architect a decentralized social network. I think we're at the point now where you could build a really credible, high performance, great user experience social network that was built on top of a blockchain. And I've thought a lot about that. And I have a bunch of stuff I've been writing about that. I just don't know. I think the audience for that might be relatively small. So I blog a lot less now than I used to. And I think it's partly because I just feel like my interests have become esoteric, maybe. I don't know. But then again, I... My experience with blogging, I used to blog a lot, is that it's very hard to predict which blog posts resonate. And so part of me wonders if I should just maybe write more and, you know, you'll have a bunch of flops, but maybe one or two will land. And then with your investment activities, as these projects are getting developed and the investments are in different forms, does that give you more bandwidth compared to traditionally serving on a bunch of boards that's time intensive? In the crypto world, we do governance, but we don't do it through boards. We do it through the tokens. So we own a bunch of tokens and they have votes. It's very interesting. And we've been building it up. We just announced we hired Anthony Albanese, who is the chief regulatory officer of the New York Stock Exchange. He joined us and he's going to be part of this, probably leading up this effort, which is what we call crypto network operations, which essentially is how do we get involved in the in these blockchain communities in a way that we can be we can positively contribute and do traditional governance roles of like oversight, 
So the way it literally works with these things is that there are forums, people have discussions, and then there are votes, and you vote with your tokens, and you do it like this cryptographic method where you prove you have them, and then you actually vote. We also do this thing we call delegating. We want to make sure that the networks are sufficiently decentralized. And so in some cases, because we were the early venture capital investors, we own a bunch of the tokens. We want to make sure we aren't sort of doesn't skew too much towards us. And so we've delegated a lot of them. And there's a whole system for doing that. And so we delegate to other organizations in the community who we think will play a positive role. That takes a lot of work. We have to go and vet candidates and actually go do it like technically. That's how we envision the future, which is it's kind of more like the public shareholder. You know, if you think about what, I don't know, you know this world better than me, Value Act, or I don't know who's, uh, are they the good ones? I don't know. The, like, if you think about good activist shareholders, I think if it's much more like that, like we'd be part of a community, we would publicly discuss these things, and then we would vote on what we think is the best. So that's how we view governance in the future. How do follow-on funding rounds work in these? Is it somewhat similar? Yeah. So it's a great question. It's complicated, but I think essentially you should think of it as the early stages. Some of these companies start off more like traditional venture investments where there's equity. And then there's also what we call token rights. This is sort of pre-launch. And then once they launch, there are tokens out there and they're issued by a blockchain and the company no longer controls things. So there's really these two phases pre and post-launch. So pre-launch, it looks more like a traditional venture-backed company. Post-launch, it's not. And the way they do follow-on funding is it's literally controlled by the code. I mean, so at this point, like, if you go look at these, there are very large treasuries, but the treasury is literally, I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but it's controlled by the code. And the only way that humans have oversight of the code is by voting on these governance votes. And so the community can go and decide to allocate some of those tokens to different things, or even to sell some of those tokens to build up the treasury. But it's truly owned by this crowd, if you will, right? So yeah, so once they're launched, and generally they don't need fund, they don't need fiat funding anymore because it's just code. They don't have fiat expenses. The people working on Bitcoin today are open source contributors who probably own some Bitcoin themselves and therefore want to have some financial interest in seeing Bitcoin succeed, but they aren't getting paid for it and they don't raise money or anything like that. And are the economic incentives sufficiently strong for coders and in these open source networks to keep going? I think that in some cases, yes. Some cases, no. And the ones where the answer is no, it's a learning experience. And it's a big topic that we actively talk about is how to make sure that in going forward, this is something we basically that we, the community has been learning over time is how do you best set up the company's treasury, the tokens, such that it will incentivize future development. So I think actually one is literally an active area of work. We think that, for example, that the protocol should allocate a bigger chunk of tokens to software development as opposed to other activities and are trying to work with entrepreneurs to figure out the best mechanisms. But your question is very much on the cutting edge of the whole field right now. Well, Chris, this is super, super interesting. I want to turn to a couple of closing questions before I let you go here. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I like to read a lot. I like to read a lot of history books. I'm a big believer that the best and maybe only way to have any insight into the future is through history. I'm particularly interested in the Victorian era of entrepreneurship, I guess. I've read a lot there. I sort of think of that era... Thomas Edison, Westinghouse, Tesla, maybe a little later than Victorian, but Henry Ford, Wright Brothers, Morse, Bell. I think of it as this amazing period where you had basically a thousand Elon Musks or something. I mean, these towering figures. I read a lot. I think say that's kind of a boring answer, but I read, and mostly history books. Do you think there was anything unique about that period of time that fostered such a wide range of the successful entrepreneurs? Well, one thing clearly, in the same way that like we're now living through the computer science age, they were living through the electrical engineering slash mechanical engineering age, right? So like just the fact that you had these new things like electricity, obviously just it was a huge breakthrough and you could do all sorts of things. The railroad, the automobile, uh, mechanical engineering breakthroughs, and then of course the whole path of light bulbs. I think it's partly just all of these trends coming together. I think somewhat controversially, I think the relative lack of regulatory frameworks. They were very aggressive in a way. Think about railroads. Today, you would need effectively unlimited eminent domain to do what those people did back then. So, I mean, it's not just regulatory, but it's also just, let's call it fewer vested interests. Things weren't as built up. You didn't have as many, you had to build a World Trade Center, right? They had to negotiate for 10 years with all these different regulatory bodies and owners and this and that versus the Empire State Building, which is famously like, you know, whatever it was, under a year. Maybe it's Greenfield, Brownfield, or pick your metaphor. But it was partly regulatory, partly, I think just if you read it, just the level of aggressiveness of these. It's like That's why I said Elon Musk. Like Almost all those people I mentioned, by the way, they ended up bankrupt at the end. I mean, you know, not, it's not like a happy ending. But just 
incredibly aggressive, fertile new technology territory, relatively fewer regulations. What's your most important daily habit? My ideal day, I have this framework, if you want to call it. I try to do an hour of exercise. I run, and it's a big deal for me. It keeps me sane. And then my ideal day, I would do an hour of running, an hour of reading, an hour of writing. I find that each, like the first hour of each, and ideally in the morning when you're kind of fresh and as opposed to later, and then, you know, of course, meetings and email and everything else. I would say also like one thing I've experimented a lot with is trying to balance between the humanities and the sciences. So like maybe the writing will be programming computers as opposed to actually writing. Uh, Maybe the reading one day will be fiction another day. I've gotten very obsessed with this idea. So are you familiar with like the keto diet and all this other kind of keto? And so... And I do intermittent fasting, all these trendy Silicon Valley things. I think of a similar thing with how you spend your mental time. I have this idea, unpublished blog post I call Media Keto. The idea is think of media consumption kind of like you do with food. And I think of social networks, like reading Twitter and things is like sugar. Reading the news, I consider sugar. I don't read the news much. Reading a book is protein. Writing is protein. Speaking to a friend or someone you like is protein. I think a lot about that. You can't control how your brain responds to stimulus. What you can control, I think, is kind of the meta level of where you decide to direct your brain. I found I had a dramatic improvement in my happiness when I really don't read. The only news I read is stuff that comes to me on Twitter, like tech news and you know other news will obviously come to you on Twitter. But I really, really, really try not to get caught up in reading like news websites and things like this. Really cut back on social. I don't have a Facebook account. I have a LinkedIn account. I can't get rid of Twitter, unfortunately, because I just depend on it. But I try to really cut down on usage. I only use it on the desktop. This is my best way to do it. And it's not because I'm pro those services. They're amazing services. I'm not anti them. I just find from a, my own kind of attention and cognition and things that it's just my brain and everything just feels so much healthier and better when I read a book or I talk to somebody, right? I do spend a lot of time thinking about that and trying to improve that. And I mess it up all the time. Fail at it, but that's a big important thing of habit. I guess I'm trying to develop. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I had very hands-off parents, which, for better or worse, and that's how I got into computers and things like this. Is they had no interest in them, but they encouraged me and let me do whatever. I, you know, just sort of, hey, like computers. Okay, great, do more computers. And so, and it was a different era. You know, we didn't have a lot of the video games weren't as good, and the internet and things like this. So me and my friends would play with computers and then make up weird board games to play and things like this. So I guess this is maybe a bit of a cliche now, but I have come to really believe in this concept of, I think it's very important for people to have play and hobbies and interests and to develop those interests. And I guess it's affected the way I think about the world in the sense that I think a lot of very important things come from those side interests and hobbies. And a lot of what we kind of consider productive work is important, but oftentimes can fall prey to short-termism, I guess, and kind of groupthink and other things. So I don't know. That'd be one, I guess. All right. Last one, and we'll turn to a couple extra for the premium members. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I do wish I had moved to Silicon Valley earlier. I spent most of my career on the East Coast, and I love the East Coast. It's wonderful. But if you're going to do tech, like there's a lot of debate now with the pandemic. Maybe that will change and things will spread out. But in retrospect, it was all fine and you know it worked out. But like, I do think just if you're going to do something, going to that place, just that I think a lot of people spend way too much time prepping for things. You go to school, you do this, you do that. If you want to be a tech entrepreneur, go to Silicon Valley and become an entrepreneur. Like if you want to do X, go do X. I wrote a blog post. Uh, it was popular a long time ago called Climbing the Wrong Hill. And it was just about this idea that in people's careers, I think you get caught on kind of a local optimum. Imagine the career landscape as a hilly landscape, and there's the highest hill is where you kind of want to get to. It's very easy to sort of be walking up a hill and feel like you're succeeding. This is like you're at a job, you're at McKinsey, and you feel like you're doing well, and you're getting a promotion next year, and you're doing this. But my long-term goal is to go be an entrepreneur, right? But then what happens is you get caught on that hill, because at each moment, it's like you're getting up higher on the hill, and you're getting promotion, and you're a year away from this, and it becomes harder and harder to make that kind of leap over to the other hill. And there's all sorts of ways to rationalize it. Oh, I'm learning. I'm prepping. I'm, I think that my biggest learning is just that's all a trap. If you want to do X, you've got to do like sometimes I'll have people that are younger come and ask for career advice and they say, well, what should I do? Should I stay at this job? Should I do this? Should I do that? Like, what should I should I? It's always funny because if you ask, well, what do you want to be in 10 years? And they say, I want to be an entrepreneur. And then like, well, how come all of the choices you presented to me don't involve that thing? (laughs) You know, it's very obvious advice, but somehow I didn't 
understand it for a long time. And I think there's all sorts of ways you rationalize and there's social pressures too, right? You're at whatever, you're at some fancy school, you're at a fancy company, you're at Google and it's every time you go, your parents think it's great and your friends think it's great. And wow, I can go into some unnamed startup is scary and people will say I'm dumb. And like, there's all sorts of pressures and signals and other things that I think lead people astray here. I think the right answer is very simple, which is, it's nothing simple. I don't want to make it too simple. But but if you're sure that you want to do X, go do X. The shortest path to that is to do X and not all these other complicated things that somehow at least I was told to do. Chris, this is super fascinating. Thanks so much for all the time. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it. Let's keep going with just a couple more and we'll cut it there. What's your biggest pet peeve? I don't know if I have pet peeves. Give me an example. What's your biggest pet peeve? I think it's become people who are driving in front of me just like a good bit below the speed limit when I need to get somewhere. It's not a pet peeve. That's actually annoying. That's, that's why I don't, there's things that annoy me, but they're justified because I'm correct. All right. How about something that annoys you in the investment realm? Can I reframe it as what are things that are popularly believed in the investment realm or something that I don't believe? Yeah, go for it. I would say imputing logic onto things that are probably noisy and random. My impression of a lot of investing is everything from if you could watch CNBC and they say the market moved today because of X, Y, and Z. And in fact, it was probably moved because whatever, some algorithmic trading bot did X, Y, and Z, and who knows what million other random things happened. And this happens in venture capital. It happens in every area of investment to impute some logic onto things that are actually much more complicated and hard to predict. And I think one of the hardest things to do in investing is to be kind of properly intellectually modest and realize that you, the vast majority of things you don't know. All right. Let me ask you one more. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I've made a lot of mistakes. I would say, I believe that in my business, at least, liquidity is a bug and not a feature. And what I mean by that is the ability to sell something is a very, very dangerous thing and can mess with you. And I bet you that if most venture capitalists could sell their stock along the way, would have far lower returns because the reality of any successful venture is that it's a roller coaster and the reaction of people on that roller coaster tend to be magnify the even the already kind of significant ups and downs. And as a result, people freak out and and try to bail out of things. And I've done that before, too. In crypto, you hear it all the time. People that sold other Bitcoin at the bottom, people that I know a lot of people who were like bought Bitcoin in like 2010 at like pennies and then sold it all in like 2012 at like a dollar because God knows it can never go up more than that. I've learned that the most important thing in investing, I believe, is having a very long term horizon, being very patient, not thinking about things very often, frankly, on a lot of these things, just like not overthinking it and like looking and checking it. And then, frankly, having the the cash and the other kinds of resources so you don't need to, right? So you don't get like a margin call effectively or something, which happens a lot too. So I think that would be one of the things. I, if I look back, I wish I had understood that better before. And I feel like I finally understand it. Great. Chris, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Ted. Yeah, no, it was really fun. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 